Hi, everyone. Welcome to Commercial Real Estate Bosses, where we interview badass investors who are crushing it in the commercial real estate space. I'm your host, Sierra Hoffman. And on today's call, we have Fernando Angelucci of Self Storage Syndicated Equities. So that's a mouthful. But thank you so much, Fernando, for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Sierra. Perfect. As usual, I always like to start off by knowing more about your story. Tell us your background and how did you get into commercial real estate? Yeah, I'll go all the way back. I'm the son of two immigrants from Brazil. And when they came to the United States, they had a little American dream. Go to school, get really good grades or else you're not allowed Mm -hmm. to come home. (laughs) Go get a a job at a Fortune 50 company, work there for 40 years and retire with a pension. Unfortunately for them, or now I guess fortunately, when I was 16, I ended up reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that (laughs) completely transformed the way I look at wealth and creating Mm -hmm. income for me and my family. So from there, started off, actually, before I started doing real estate, I still went to school. I got all right grades, ended up getting a job with a Fortune 50 company, but only lasted with that company for 13 months before I was so fed up <laughs> that I said, you know what, I need to start my own company. So started then doing residential flipping and buy and hold, then multifamily buy and hold, a little bit of flipping. And then from there, we branched into self-storage. So I found out about self-storage mm-hmm. in 2016 when I was at a actually a commercial real estate conference. Yeah. And I said, you know what? I think the market's going to crash, which I was completely mm-hmm. wrong. So I sold <laughs> off all of our multifamily assets and single family assets and then started buying self-storage in August of 2018. Great. So you started really, really young. I mean, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad at the age of 16. That's an, a really early start. So how old were you when you left your nine to five? I graduated in college in, I'm an engineer by training. I, I graduated college in 2013 and then I lasted 13 months, so 2014. So I was, I was 22, 23 around that time is when I left to start the, the company. And the way I did it was very interesting. I wouldn't recommend anybody do this, but I didn't know any <laughs> other options. I ended up going out and applying for like 60 something credit cards in one night, like almost within oh, wow. a couple hours of each other. So they, they didn't oh see God. the credit hits from the other credit cards. <laughs> I got 12 approved. And then when they showed up to my house a week later, I cash advanced $97,000 off of them. Oh and that's how God. I started my company. <laughs> oh my God. So that's crazy. Don't so. do that. There's other ways to raise capital. I'm just listeners, don't do that. <laughs> of course. Yeah. How long did it take you to pay those off? I paid them off in 18 months because mm-hmm. nice. immediately took action. I, I immediately lost 30,000, like right off the bat, just oh, wow. gone. But then I hit the ground running because I'm an engineer. I'm very meticulous. I love spreadsheets. So I had a spreadsheet that calculated what my interest was per day, per hour and per minute. So I knew exactly, it was such a good motivator to be like, Hey, this is when you're messing around and you're not working. Yeah. This is how much you're burning here per minute. Oh my goodness. So yeah, aggressively attacked those. I started off by flipping contracts or wholesaling real estate. Mm -hmm. So that was able to get some money in really quickly to not only teach me how to do real estate, because if Mm -hmm. I'm able to put something under contract and sell that contract to a professional, I'm probably valuing this correctly. And then from there on, very quickly, I'd noticed that all of my buyers, the ones that were really wealthy, were the ones that did buy and hold real estate. And so I said, you know what, that must be the way to go. So then started Mm -hmm. doing buy and hold real estate, 
And then now I do buy and hold commercial real estate or self-storage. So now we're in the last five years. So since August of 2018, we've done $220 million worth of self-storage. Wow. And then I have another 140 million in the pipeline for the next 12 months. We're hoping <laughs> to keep going. The goal is to have a 10-figure exit in 10 years. Okay, great. So your goal is to exit the business eventually. Yeah, we're building up a large portfolio. I'm currently in the top 100 operators in the country, but I'd like to be in the top 20. And then once mm -hmm. I get into the top 20, I'd like to sell to someone in the top six. Wow. Very specific. Yeah. Oh, you got to so, have specific goals, smart goals, right? <laughs> so why are you wanting to exit versus hold on and just keep? Yeah. So I will always have properties that I'll hold in my retirement account, right? But mm -hmm. I need to exit so that I can pay back our investors. So that's the goal because how we do it and how we were scale so fast is through syndications. We'd be raising mm -hmm. capital from quasi-institutional investors. So started off with friends and family and then friends of friends and family and then retail mm -hmm. investors like your country club money. And now we're raising money from these quasi-institutional investors, which are your family offices, your wealth managers, and your registered investment advisors. Got it. So the self-storage units that you have been acquiring, do you have a strategy where you hold it for a certain period of time or are you just accumulating right now and then they're going to sell them all at, at once in that 10-year mark? Yeah. So we have three buckets of how we operate this business. So the first bucket that we learned and perfected was buying these mom and pop operated facilities. So these are typically in secondary tertiary markets where you can get much higher entrance cap rates. But these assets are typically smaller. As soon as I jump over about 60,000 net rentable square feet per facility, all of a sudden the cap rates dropped in half. And I was like, what is causing this? And then I realized it's because now instead of competing against other people like me and other mom and pops, I started competing against institutional publicly traded companies. And I said, wow, okay, this is, I want to get to this large net rentable number, maybe eight to 9 million net rentable square feet in my portfolio, but I'm not going to be able to do it by buying these 20 and 30,000 square foot facilities. So right. if I can't buy the big ones, I'm going to have to build them. So that's when it opened up the second vertical of our business where we do ground up development. So we buy the land and then we put up these large class A state of the art facilities. They're typically 16 to $20 million to build. They're usually around 700 to 1,000 units, anywhere between 80 to 100,000 net rentable square feet per facility. And these are the ones that the institutional investors are very, this is what they have an appetite for, right? Right. And then COVID hit and we started having some really tough times sourcing materials. And if we could even get the material, then it was 500% the cost. Steel during the pandemic went up five times. Lumber went up extremely high as well as being in the multifamily space. Yeah. So we had to pivot and figure out a way to not only shorten our construction timeline, but use less materials and be able to do it in a more cost accretive way. So what we ended up doing was we noticed that retail has been slowly dying for 20 plus years because of Amazon, yeah. but the pandemic really drove the knife into the heart of retail. And so all of a sudden we start seeing these fantastic buildings, Sears buildings, Walmarts, Kmart's, they're a hundred thousand square foot shell. 
And we said, hey, let's buy this shell and then let's convert it into climate control storage because then we're already weathered in. The buildings are already up. Mm. So what that did was it dropped our construction timeline from 12 to 14 months down to six to eight months. And then it also dropped our total cost on these projects from $120 a foot down to 80 bucks a foot, right? So really good savings there. So those are now our three individual buckets and we still do all three, right? So you have your mm -hmm. cash flowing existing mom and pop stuff that yeah. typically you sell to other smaller investors or you can portfolio them into larger 10, 20 property portfolios and then sell them off into a kind of intermediary style investor. You have your adaptive reuse conversion, which is those turning the Walmarts and the Sears buildings and our ground developments, which are more institutional basin. Mm -hmm. So those ones we can wrap into smaller portfolios of three to five properties and then sell them to the publicly traded real estate investment trusts like public storage and extra space and those types of guys. Awesome. So you transitioned away from multifamily into self-storage and you said it was because you thought maybe there was going to be like a recession or some type of crash that didn't happen. But why self-storage now versus also having other multifamily or things in your portfolio? Yeah, so there's a ton of reasons. I actually have nine reasons, but I'll just cover <laughs> some of the high value ones here. So first of all, I'm a numbers guy. So I was looking for asymmetric risk return profiles. So what I noticed was storage over the last 35 years was one of the best performing assets in an outperformed habitation-based real estate, which is residential and multifamily by almost 4% a year. Now that 4% may not sound like a lot, but you got to realize that 4% is compounding as well. So for example, if you start with $100,000 at the beginning of the study period and invested into say the S&P 500, you'd have half a million dollars. If you put that same 100,000 into apartments or single families, you'd have about $1.8 million. So that's a pretty good return. But if you put that same 100,000 into self-storage, you have about $4.1 million. And this was a study done by the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trust. So I was like, okay, great return metrics. <laughs> but if it's got high return, that must mean it has high risk. And what I actually found was it's the opposite. So let's look at the two major recessions we've gone through in the last two cycles. The first being the great financial crisis, 07 to 09. During that time, the S&P dropped 22%, multifamily dropped 7%, uh, residential dropped even more than that. But during that time, self-storage only dropped 3.5%. So again, this is a study of REITs. They're large, slow-moving behemoths, but they also have really good cash reserves. I knew a lot of investors that completely lost everything um, during those years. Now let's move forward to the pandemic. So... I, had a, I have a lot of multifamily friends and they were really feeling the pain. Um, mm -hmm. So according to TREP, which is a commercial mortgage-backed securities research firm, of the 1,700 CMBS loans that were made to self-storage investors in the first three quarters of the pandemic, so right when everything shut down, the next three quarters, only three of those loans were delinquent. That is a 0.17% delinquency rate. Now, during that same time, multifamily CMBS loans were defaulting at a rate of 1,800% higher or 18 times the default rate of self-storage. So there's that asymmetric risk return yeah. profile. The other reason was when I was investing in multifamily, I was chasing yield, which meant I was going towards more challenging neighborhoods, let's call it. Okay. Yeah. 
And what comes along with challenging neighborhoods are evictions. And some of the states that are investing in had really tough eviction laws. They were very tenant friendly. Uh, they were not landlord friendly at all. Mm-hmm. And so there was some evictions that took me eight, nine months just to get the people out. And when they finally were out, they caused $20,000 worth of damage to a unit. So that set me so far behind in my profitability years back in, in my projections. And then I found out with storage, it's actually not tenant landlord law, it's lien law or property law. So when someone puts their possessions into my storage facility, they are automatically giving me a lien against their possessions. And if they don't pay, guess what? I sell their stuff and then I have a new tenant within 45 days or less. And Mm -hmm. during the auction process, I make back all the money that I lost from them not paying the rent in fees, lien fees, auction fees, this type of stuff. So it's a net zero to me. And I have a new Mm -hmm. tenant in there that is paying immediately. So much faster ability to turn your tenants over. The other piece that I love about storage in high inflation times like we are in right now is that all of the leases are month to month, which means I don't have to wait 12 months to raise rents. In 2021, it was self-storage's best year on record. The average rental increase across the country was 6.7% month over month. So that's almost a 70% increase in one year in revenues. You can't do that with one year contract, or even if you go into like industrial where you have three, five or 10 year contracts, you can't adjust those contracts for inflation rate. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. So for someone who's listening right now and is new, they want to get into self-storage. What would you say to them as like first steps to get started into the industry? Education is always the most important thing. You want to make sure that you're educated and you know what you're doing. So there are a lot of fantastic conferences that you can go to. We actually just spoke at one a couple of weeks ago. It's called Inside Self-Storage World Expo held in Vegas. They actually do two a year in Vegas. There's the National Self-Storage Association Conference where you can also go on these fast tracks, as they call them, to learn how to do storage. If you want to learn how to do management or acquisitions or financing, things like that. And they're in the cost of admission is relatively low, maybe 500 bucks or a thousand bucks. So that's where I would start. I would start reading as much as you can online. Bigger Pockets has a lot of guys like me on there answering questions. You can also follow us on social media. We put out all this free education. We're posting three to four times a day, how to do storage, how to find them, why it's beneficial, things like that. But then once you get that education, you got to take action. And the easiest way to take action is most of you listening probably have never even seen a self-storage facility because you're not really paying attention. But I, I promise you, after this podcast, you're going to be driving down the road. And you're going to see there's one, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. <laughs> Just walk into the facility and say, hey, are you the owner or do you know the owner? I'd love to talk to you about buying your facility. The interesting thing about our industry right now is that it's extremely fragmented. So what I mean by that is that of the, call it, 60,000, 70,000 self-storage facilities in the nation, 18% of those, 18 to 20% are owned by the top six publicly traded REITs. The next 10 to 12% are owned by the largest group, which is the, the top 100 operators, which I'm a part of. That means that there's 70% of the facilities in the United States 
that are owned by mom and pop operators, people that are usually doing this as a side deal. They own two or fewer facilities. Most of the time they're retired or they're on their second retirement or third retirement. So there's a lot of opportunity to find really great deals out there and to operate them professionally. And as far as choosing a market and self-storage, would you say you can do it in your own backyard or are there certain things that people should be looking for when trying to choose a market and self-storage? Yeah. So this is a loaded question, I guess, because (laughs) the interesting thing about self-storage is that it's hyper local, which means that within a three to five mile radius or a five to 15 minute drive time around the facilities, we're going to get almost 90% of your tenant base. Okay. So to say, Hey, Chicago's good or Chicago's bad. You can't say that. You can say this three to five mile area of Chicago is good. And this next three to five mile area is super saturated. It doesn't make sense. Now, as far as operating in your backyard, you can or you cannot, right? Storage is very easy to operate. Not easy. It's not complex is what I should say. You can put systems in place that you never have to actually have to be at your facility, right? You can hire third-party managers. You can run everything remotely. So if you're in a market like California, investing in your backyard is probably not the best thing to do because you're not going to basically, you're going to get yield that is the equivalent of investing your money in the stock market. And it's with way more work. If you happen to live like in the Southeast, then yeah, investing in your backyard would be a great idea. So it's really up to the person and their personality type. I bought my first facility. It was about a two and a half hour drive from my house. And then after operating that one for six months, I realized, hey, I don't need to buy anywhere near me. I can do this completely remotely. And then we started buying in more markets. I, I, I'm, I was based in Chicago, so a little bit tougher market to find facilities, right? Yeah. Speaking of just the market in general, what are your thoughts on where we're heading? We're in 2023 right now. Do you see that maybe self-storage becomes more and more popular because people are, maybe they're afraid with a a possible recession happening and maybe they want to park their assets in something that is more stable, such as self-storage? Yeah. So as we've seen over the last five recessions, self-storage has outperformed almost every other asset. And that's because when people are downsizing or changing jobs, guess what do they do with their stuff? They put it into storage, right? So I think the market is it's an interesting question because every day I'm reading one article that says we're about to s- slam into a massive recession. And then I read another article right after that says, hey, we're at the bottom right now and it's only up from here, right? So very interesting. Yeah. I usually don't pay attention to that too much. Just I pay attention on operating a good business, finding value in the market. If all you do is buy stabilized assets at top value, then yeah, recessions can be bad. But as real estate investors, we force equity. We go buy facilities that are undervalued, right? The rents aren't high. The expenses are too high. And then we drop those expenses. We increase the rents. We make the facilities pretty. And then we force appreciation. So most of my facilities, I'm usually doubling or tripling my money in those facilities within two to five years. As far as the, let's say the financing market though, that is somewhere where we've had to get extremely creative because basically in 12 to 18 months, our interest costs have doubled. And as we've been seeing just two days ago, another two or three banks collapsed. They had to halt trading. 
So on that side, what we started doing is going back to the ways people used to do things in the 80s when interest rates were 18%. And that's is structuring very creative seller financing, structuring very creative equity deals where we'll say, hey, Mr. Seller, I can't give you that price. However, if you were to contribute your land or your facility into a joint venture, then I'd be able to give you an 18% return, which would then get you to the price that you need. So there's a lot of creative ways that you can do that right now. Perfect. And so speaking of that, I want to transition a little bit and go into a deal walkthrough. So maybe you can talk about a deal where you did have to do some of that creative financing to get the deal done mm-hmm. and just tell our audience how the deal was found and how you were able to take it across the finish line. Yeah, absolutely. So I can give you two examples. I can give you a like equity ground up construction deal example, and I can also give you like an existing cash flowing facility where it was more of a debt structure. So let's start with the debt structure one. Right now it's very hard to get deals done just with cash, especially because all these sellers, they had brokers knocking down their doors, telling them their facilities were worth millions of dollars 12, 18 months ago. And that number is now fixed in their head, right? Yeah. Fortunate part is real estate is valued based on the type of cash flow it returns after debt service. And if your debt service is super high, like we've seen in the last 12 months of interest rates increasing, we just got another 25 basis point raise yesterday, that destroys the value of your facility. So what I say is said, listen, Mr. Seller, I am willing to give you that price of your facility that you were told 12, 18 months ago, but I want you to give me the financing that was available to me 12, 18 months ago again. So if you're unwilling to do that, then I'll, I can pay you a price that's lower than you want based on what my bank will allow me to pay you. So it's not me versus you. It's me and you versus the bank, right? (laughs) Yeah. So we had a deal that we ended up structuring where I was able to pay him value that was much higher than what it should be valued today because he was allowing me to bring 12.5% down at a 4% interest rate for 10 years interest only. So really fantastic financing for me. He gets the price he wants and he makes some interest income on top of it. So he's even getting a higher price than what he was wanting. And I get a deal that is cash flowing like crazy because my debt service and my principal payments are super low. Love that. So that's our debt side. Now let's talk equity side. So this works a little bit better when you have significant value add that you need to do. And the seller has owned the property for more than called two years, 24 months. Mm-hmm. So. I was negotiating this land deal. It was a 25 acre land deal. And I was gonna use six acres of that for self storage and then just figure out what to do with the rest of the land later on. He wanted $3 million. And I said, listen, we can really only pay 2 million for this just based on where financing is and the cost of development, things like that. But if you're willing to contribute the land into a joint venture with me, I can not only give you your $3 million price, but I'll actually give you a return on that $3 million as well because now you're an investor, right? So here's why I structured it this way. Because he's owned that land since 1985, I got an appraisal on the land and it came back at $2.2 million. That appraisal, now that is equity. That is money I don't have to go out and raise for that deal, right? So that is now I'm walking into a bank saying, hey, I'm ready. 2.2 million in. So I'll be able to raise half instead of me raising 5 million, I'll only have to raise two and a half million bucks. 
So the cool structure of that one is we kept the seller at 18% of the ownership of the deal. That way he didn't have to be underwritten by the bank. The bank was allowing me to use all of that equity as down payment. And the way I structured with him, I said, here's how we're going to work it. The land was worth 2.2 based on the appraisal. You want 3 million. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you a acquisition fee up front because he wanted a little bit of a down payment to take care of some family members, things like that, travel. So we're going to pay him 300,000 up front as an acquisition fee. And then I'm going to double the remaining $1.7 million up to the appraisal value for him over five years, just like I would do with any other investor. And then the remaining 1 million that I still owe you, I'm going to pay you that out once I either sell off the remaining land or exchange that land for equity in someone else's deal that maybe builds multifamily or retail or industrial, something like that, right? So that's the way that I was able to basically turn a deal that was never going to be able to get done into a deal that not only is it getting done, but it's hyper profitable for all parties involved. I love that. Yeah, definitely to get creative sometimes, especially in this current market with rising interest rates, there's ways to get the deal done if you know how to do it. So thank you right. so much for sharing that. And tell us what you're working on right now. What's next for you and your company? Yeah. So as I alluded to in the beginning of our podcast here, we have a million dollars worth of development in the pipeline in the uh, Florida market. So uh, we are actually right before this call, I, I was on a call with my partners. We we're structuring a fund that we'll be launching. And that fund will allow us to almost double our current inventory of storage over the next 18 months. So those are going to be all ground up developments in high growth markets in Florida. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Where is the best place for people to find you? And if they want to reach out to you and maybe learn more about your fund and upcoming projects you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm a big take massive action type of guy. So I can give you our website, which is sssse.com, and you can go sign up for being an investor or whatever. You can go check us out on social media. The company's social media is either Triple SE or Self Storage Syndicated Equities. We put out a bunch of great education there. If you want to chat with me on social media, all my handles are The Storage Stud, so you can find me there. But the thing that I love the most is I'm just going to give you my cell phone number. This is wow. my real cell phone number. So <laughs> I, I want you guys to take action. Shoot me a text or give me a call if you have any questions or, you know, burning desires to have a conversation with me. Uh, my number is area code 630-408-8090. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that and for providing so much value today. And thanks, everyone, for listening in. If you enjoyed today's show, please write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Every review helps us to reach more and more people looking to get involved in commercial real estate. If you're looking to level up your investment game, join the Commercial Real Estate Bosses community. It's completely free, and inside, you will get access to our Passive Investing 101 Masterclass, as well as regular live trainings where you can ask questions, and access to industry professionals and like-minded investors. Join for free today by going to crebosses.com slash join. That's crebosses.com slash join. Or click on the link below and I'll see you inside.